4 today. Go ahead and open your Bible to Acts chapter 4, 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Acts 4, 32 through 5, 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there is one provided for you in the back of the pew right there in front of you. You'll find this passage on page 773 or 813 of the pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. Acts 432 through 511. And while you're turning there, I'll, um, I'll share this little story. There was a, a, a pastor uh, of a church that overall was really um, quite healthy. They loved the Lord. They loved one another, served within the church and the, and the community faithfully. They shared their faith. They gave, gave financially and, and, uh, and all those kind of things. He, he wished, um, you know, attendance was a little more regular for many of them, um, especially on cold rainy days. But, uh, but by and large, um, it was that this is not autobiographical, by the way. I'm just, uh, just tell, I, I'm just telling you the story the way I heard it. Okay. But, but by and large, it was a healthy church and, uh, he was expecting a visit the following Sunday from a liaison from Presbytery who was going to come down and just check on the church, see how things were going, check on him, see how things were going for him. And and uh, privately, he wanted things to go well. You know, he felt like it in, in a number of ways that this was a reflection on him personally. His identity was wrapped up in that sort of thing. He wanted that to go well and uh, wanted attendance to be strong, wanted it to be kind of a buzz in the air. And so he announced that as a special part of the service the following week, there would be an appearance from Ed the Wonder Horse. And he shared with the congregation that um, Ed was uh, the smartest horse known to mankind. He could count, he could do arithmetic better than a lot of the members of the congregation for that matter. And uh, he would show some of that next week. Well, when they gathered that following Sunday, of course, the place was packed. The pews were full. There were people standing in the aisles in the vestibule. They were dressed to the hilt knowing that uh, they were going to have a couple of special visitors that day. And so the pastor invited this liaison from Presbytery forward to help, you know, with the activity and called Ed the Wonder Horse up with his handler and uh, just told the Presbytery liaison, you know, ask him a couple of questions. He can count, he can add and subtract and things like that. And uh, so he said, okay, well, what's, Ed, what's five plus three? And Ed would stomp, you know, eight times. He says, that's pretty good. What's six minus four? Ed stomps twice. He says, Ed, how many hypocrites are there in this church? (laughs) Ed broke out into a gallop around around the outside of the sanctuary. Even the healthiest churches have hypocrites. And by the way, to any who uh, maybe have just sort of wandered in here and you're usually standoffish about church because there are hypocrites, well, that's true pretty much everywhere, even in the healthiest churches. There are hypocrites, and the first century church was no exception. 
uh, it was perhaps as healthy as you can imagine a church being, but it wasn't perfect. And in Acts four and five, we read about uh, the radical generosity at one end of the spectrum and brazen hypocrisy at the other end. So I've titled this message, Givers and Pretenders, for that reason. Let's look together now in Acts 4.32 through 5.11, and I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm in Acts 4, beginning in verse 32, reading out of the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart, and so, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back uh, for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray together. Well, Father, again, we thank you for the privilege of, of coming before you. And as part of our worship, we give you our attention. We listen to what you have to say to us. And we come, as you know, with the conviction that the Bible is your word and that when it is preached, your voice is heard. And we don't understand how that even is so, but you cause it to be so, Lord, that we hear what your spirit says to us through the proclamation of the scriptures. And so we ask 
that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. And would you move me out of the way and use my voice as the instrument to communicate what you want to be heard by your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Having been uh, away from the book of Acts for a few weeks, I want to offer just kind of a quick review to reset our perspective. Um, We've had Easter services the last couple of weeks and, uh, and even the week prior to that, a special uh, speaker among us. And so just want to put this passage in its context and it'll be helpful to remember that this is called the Acts of the Apostles. So uh, like the Gospels really tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus, the Acts tell us primarily about the ministry of the apostles. It focuses on them specifically, uh, focuses a lot on Peter in chapters one through 12, and then focuses primarily on Paul in uh, 13 through 28. But, But along the way, we occasionally get little snapshots of the church more broadly, kind of how the state of the union is within the church at large, and that's the case in the passage that we, we read today. And um, it comes right on the heels of Peter and John's uh, visit to the temple. If you recall, they went up to the temple to pray at the scheduled hour of prayer and they met a lame beggar um, who they healed in the name of Jesus. This man who was over 40 years old, who'd been lame from birth, rises up. He goes walking and leaping and praising God through the temple. And people are just astonished by that. A crowd assembles. And at the assembly of that crowd, Peter preaches as he did on the day of Pentecost. Many of them become believers. Most of the Jewish leaders did not. And if you'll recall, they were uh, quite adversarial toward Peter and John and called them uh, in front of them and basically said, don't preach any longer in this name. Peter said, well, we can't obey that command, basically. You decide for yourself whether it's better to listen to men or God. As for us, we're going to keep on preaching the things we've seen and heard. They go back to their friends in the assembly and say, here's what happened. Let's pray. And they pray that God will give them boldness. And those spirit-filled believers are filled with the spirit again, it tells us, in verses 28 through 31 there. And they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And that's what has transpired right before the passage that we read today. And he, and, and he sort of takes a little aside from, the, from telling us about the, the, the ministry of the apostles and gives us a snapshot again of the church. And so when we come here to the end of chapter four, we see that this is an incredibly loving church, but it's still not a perfect church. It's filled with givers, but there are also some pretenders among them. And so we'll we'll take the passage under those headings and let's look first at the givers. Look in verses 34 and 35. And even if you weren't familiar with this passage before, you probably caught this right off of the surface when we read it aloud just now. 
it says there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So the the most obvious, just sort of right in front of you point of verses 32 through 37 is that this infant church in Jerusalem was just radically generous. That what flowed out of them was this radical generosity. And Luke's reporting to us this remarkable fact that thousands of believers who have just come to faith in Christ are loving each other in this way. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. But presumably, a lot of these people didn't even know each other just weeks prior. I mean, like it, they have just become believers by the thousands and they're loving each other this way. They're a community of givers. And the, and the point here is not to sort of set out a, a, as a model for us that the ideal church lives communally and sells all their property and gives it, uh, gives the proceeds to others as they have need. And that's not the, the sort of lasting takeaway of this passage. There's no mandate here. If you notice, we'll try to unpack that um, a little bit later, but there's no mandate here or suggestion elsewhere that this is a standard to live by. This is not sort of a, a dictate that believers are supposed, if you're really Christian, you should sell all your property and give the proceeds to the poor. There's nothing that ever sets out that expectation for us. The larger point is that one of the evidences of the fullness of the spirit in this church was that their love for one another was expressed through this exceptional generosity. And well, it should be that the church would be generous and, and the reason generosity is such an important issue for the believer and the reason it was so important to Jesus himself is that it's an issue of the heart. Generosity is really an issue of the heart, not of money. You know, I thought about the fact that I hear often, uh, you know, the couple of the reasons people uh, are turned off by church is the uh, pastor always talks about preaching and it's full of hypocrites. And we're talking about both of them today, but uh, um, please come back next week if you're visiting. But this was a, this was a spirit filled church gripped by the grace of God. They're just gripped by the grace of God and their generosity just flowed out of their heart. Well, let's pay attention to how they are described here in a couple of other ways. And first of all, they're unified. Look at Verse 32 there. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This was an environment where they would literally say, what's yours is mine. Now, I think this is quite remarkable. I don't know if it strikes you this way. But let me tell you why I think it should. You know, we often talk about the fact that the the, the church ought to love and relate with one another like family does. But that would be exceptional even for family. Wouldn't it? I mean, do, do your kids apply this philosophy to their toys? 
and to their bedroom? Anybody have a teenager who says, I don't, I don't think of this as my room. Yeah, come, I mean, come on in. You need some, some of my stuff or whatever. Yeah, I mean, what's, yeah, it's not mine. It's, you know, have at it. No, you see, even, even the little, the, the pretty little girl, you know, dressed up in, in her cute little dress, tight little blonde curls with a bow in her head, sweet, you know, picture, postcard, kind of pretty until somebody come and takes one of her toys. And then she's like, mine, you know. <laughs> Even in family, we don't just naturally uh, live by that kind of philosophy, what's yours is mine. And that, this, is, this is how the church lived. I remembered a, a, a story that a, a pastor shared, um, pastor and, and, and author, I was at a, a conference one time, but he, he said that... Um, he was, he was upstairs watching in, in the bedroom with his wife, watching a TV program or something. He went downstairs to the kitchen to get some ice cream. He made two cups of ice cream and uh, his, he put a little bit extra ice cream in, packed it down, you know, so it looked the same, but he had a little bit more ice cream. And on his way up the stairs, about halfway up, he forgot which one was which. <laughs> And he, and he had this crisis moment, you know, on the stairs. And then he realizes, you know, I'm a pastor. I've been married to this woman for 35 years. And I'm trying to figure out how I can cheat her out of an extra scoop of ice cream. Because that's, that's more like family, right? That feels familiar. That feels familiar. It's, it's remarkable, this kind of unity. They are of one heart and one soul. Don't consider anything their own. What's mine is yours. That's the, the level of unity of this church. Verse 33 also says, there was great grace upon them. Great grace upon them. And that shouldn't be surprising at all in a church that is so unified. In our sermon series back in the fall, for those who were here then we observe that as people who have received God's grace, that we should be gracious in our dealings with other people. Uh, you may remember that from uh, Ephesians 4, specifically that, that, that Christians just ought to be grace-giving people because we've received grace. And if we understand that, uh, then we give it right back. And that's demonstrated through humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Well, these believers who have great grace upon them all are keenly aware of what they have received in Christ by grace. And they're, and they're just living it out. It's a unified church. It's a church filled with grace and therefore a church that just overflows with this radical generosity. But of course, they're not alone among among them are also some pretenders. And like most of us, Ananias and Sapphira were not as radically generous as most of them were and as Barnabas was. But they wanted to appear as if they were. They were pretenders in that respect. Look in verses one through four again. Let's just read that 
quickly together. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so uh, this is the equivalent of, you know, Ananias, say, sold his, his house and, um, you know, he owned it outright. He sells it and, and, and he sells it for $300,000 in, in today's money, maybe. And he goes to the apostles and says, hey, great news. It's closed on the sale of my house. Didn't get as much as I was hoping to get for it, but we, we got $250,000. Here you go. Yay, Ananias and Sapphira, thank you. you know, that's what they're going for. And that's kind of what has transpired here. In other words, that they, they have held back some for the, themselves, but they've presented it as if this was everything. But see, no one was compelled to give anything, much less everything. Did you pick that up as we were reading? I and mean, there was no suggestion. In fact, again, this is part of what's remarkable about this that Luke recounts is this just happened. Nobody's compelled to give anything, much less everything. And he says, um, while, you know, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? This was yours to decide what to do with. But now you've come pretending and you've lied not to men, but to God. And he just fell down dead when he heard that word. Um, and, and it doesn't say a whole lot about uh, what the cause of that death is. There's different, different people who fill in the blanks about uh, why did he die? What caused him to die there or whatever? I'm not gonna fill in the blanks because they're blanks. Uh, and also because I've got other things <laughs> that I wanna say today. But he just, at, this, at the hearing of this word, he just, he just drops dead and, and so does his wife, Sapphira. But it's not because there was somehow this contract that he didn't abide by, that he was supposed to give everything like everybody else did. There was no compulsion to do that. He just wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He wanted to hold back some of it for himself, but appear as if he had been just as generous as everyone else. See, Barnabas's um, gift at the end of chapter four seems to be set up to contrast with Ananias's. In other words, this, this seems to be the way Luke tells the story, names Barnabas specifically and his gift of 100% of the proceeds and sets it against Ananias. And, and, and it tells us there down in, it was verse 36 and 37 of chapter four, that Barnabas's real name is Joseph. He's called Barnabas by the apostles because that means son of encouragement. He's just such an encourager that they give him the nickname Barnabas, son of, son of encouragement. And so you can imagine this, this gift that Barnabas gave was just consistent with the heart that Barnabas has. You, you, you know, I, I, I can imagine people there saying, yeah, you know, that is, that's such a Barnabas thing to do. And Barnabas came and gave this gift. That's just such a Barnabas thing to do because he's that kind of guy. 
and Ananias and Sapphira want to be known for doing a Barnabas thing as well. And so they just pretend that they've given as generously as Barnabas had. They understood that radical generosity was characteristic of this community. And they understood that the community valued generosity. So they pretended. And here's what we can take from that. In the church, well, like most places, to be honest with you, but in the church, whatever is celebrated will be fabricated. Whatever is celebrated will be fabricated. Uh, Not by everybody, but it will by some. What What I mean by that is when we see which qualities the community values, we want people to think we possess those qualities. And so if we don't, we try to appear that we do. That's what I mean by if the, what's celebrated will be fabricated. If the community celebrates it, I want to be celebrated by the community. So if I don't measure up to the standard, I'll just dress up to it. <laughs> and fabricate something to make you think that I'm there. There's this gap between what we are and what we ought to be, right? Or at least what we think others think we ought to be. And hypocrisy tries to cover that gap with some kind of facade. Just to make others think it's not there. So in other words, the hypocrite doesn't really care that there's a gap. They're not interested in closing the gap. They just want you to think there's no gap. That's hypocrisy. That's the essence of hypocrisy. Wanting you to think I'm more than I am. Not really caring that I'm not what I, more than I am, but just wanting you to think that I am. Clothing the gap rather than closing the gap, you might say. The alternative, of course, would be to just surrender that to the Lord and ask him to help close the gap. You know, you think of the the man in, uh, in the Gospels that said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This would have been a fitting prayer for Ananias and Sapphira to say, Lord, I'm generous, help my lack of generosity. I'm generous, just not that generous. Lord, help me. Show me what it is in my own heart that it, that, that, that doesn't reach to the same level as Barnabas or these others. That would have been the alternative. And most likely, if we're honest, if we want to find ourselves in this story, we should look no further than Ananias and Sapphira. Thankfully, we're not dead yet. <laughs> but probably we could have been, right? Maybe not, maybe not by, by, by quite, because of quite as brazen an act as, as them to, to make this real public presentation of their pretentious gift, pretended gift. But we probably identify with them, at least in respect that here's what I am and here's what I ought to be, something greater than that in terms of my generosity. And so what do I, how do I begin to recognize that gap in myself 
and to do something about it? Well, I'd say, first of all, we want to ask ourselves the question and even ask the Lord to help us answer the question, what is it that keeps me from giving generously? And I I think of four reasons that I've identified here. Number one, I like the sense of security that my money might give me. By the way, I'm using I uh, sort of generically here. I don't know that I have enough money to feel secure in it, okay? But but I might if I did, okay? Uh, I'm not afraid to try uh, feeling secure, having enough money to feel secure in it. But I like the sense of security that my money gives me. So, so you know, there, there might be a person who, um, you know, not necessarily hoards it, but really just saves it up. And they want to have a big enough nest egg that sort of no matter what the contingency plan is, no matter what happens, no, the, the market tanks, major illness, lose a job, whatever the case is, I got it under control. I like the sense of security that that gives me. And so I might... I might be less inclined to give generously to the church and to the poor because of the security it provides me to hold on to. Number two, I long for something that my money might provide me in the future or enjoyment that my money might provide me in the future. So maybe uh, saving up for a vacation or a big international trip or a boat or something like that. You're you're longing for enjoyment that you imagine is going to come sometime in the future by way of the money that you're holding back. You you don't wanna give it because you're you're longing for the satisfaction it's gonna give you later. And And it may become a thing where the longing becomes as much a thing as the thing itself right? You, you, you'll find the longing was more pleasurable than the boat is. In fact, that's almost always the case. That's almost always the case. Because the, because the things of this world don't satisfy. Money makes wings and flies away, the proverb says. But I, but I might not want to give generously because I'm longing for something money will provide me in the future. Number three, I like the pleasure that my money gives me now. I'm not longing for it later. I like it right now. I can go out and spend money on other things that just are gratifying to me in some way. And if you think about it, that sense of security, my trust in my money, in other words, my longing for something in the future and my, uh, my pleasure in something presently, those three sound real similar to faith, hope, and love. A trust, a longing, and a a pleasure in the presence. They're they're imposters um, of, of of where our affection and where our trust is really supposed to be placed. Now, what I'm getting at is, What's the big deal about generosity? This is it, because it's a heart issue. And, and how we begin to deal with it is we, is we ask, what is it in my heart? Why am, I, why am I disinclined to give 
generously. And these are some of the ways we, we, we find these substitutes that we exchange for God. You may remember in Romans chapter one, it kind of gives this picture that the natural state of fallen man is that we suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness and exchange the truth for a lie. That's what it says in Romans one. We worship the creature rather than the creator. We exchange the truth for a lie. And, and these, uh, are, are this false sense of security, this false promise that we're longing, the satisfaction we're longing to, to, to find in the future with the thing we're going to buy or the, or the pleasure we think we're going to get out of things we purchase right now, they are all exchanges that we make of the truth for a lie. But number four, my, uh, my money also can purchase things that help me build up a misplaced sense of identity. And so let me unpack this one a little bit. I'll uh, credit pastor and author Tim Keller a good bit for this one. But Keller uses an example of himself that I can relate to to a certain degree. He said, I find it easy to spend money on books, but I don't find it easy to give money to the church or to the poor. No, he gives money to the church and the poor. He just doesn't find it easy. But he finds it easy to spend money on books. And he says, I'm a teacher and a preacher. So I'm someone who's supposed to possess knowledge. And I want you to think of me as one who possesses knowledge. I might even want you to be impressed with me because of how much knowledge I possess. And so he says, when Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He said, likewise, where your heart is, there your treasure flows most effortlessly. Where your heart is, there your treasure flows most effortlessly. And he said, so, so to the extent that his heart is set on being a person who's known to be a man of knowledge and admired for that and those kind of things, his treasure flows effortlessly to build up that identity. But it doesn't flow effortlessly in other places. And he said, again, as I can also relate to, don't find it easy to spend money on clothes. You don't care a whole lot about clothes or physical appearance, but there are other people who find it effortless to spend money on clothes and, uh, and, and, and other things that sort of, you know, go to your physical appearance because maybe you really value that and you think of your, your identity is wrapped up in your physical appearance because all your life people have affirmed you because you're so beautiful or you're so handsome or whatever the, the thing may be. It becomes very deeply associated with how you think of yourself. Your heart is there and your treasure flows effortlessly there. The same could be said for the person who spends money easily on the luxury car, the country club membership, or the expensive house in the gated community because of the status associated with that, what people are gonna think of me because I drive that, I'm a member there or I live in that neighborhood. And you, you understand, right? Are you following me here? If you're tracking with me, say amen. Okay, good. I just said, if, you're, if, you were awake, if you were asleep just now, I hope that jarred you awake. 
because, because there are other things that could go in the blank there. But the point is, um, there are deeper issues. In fact, as Keller said, money is not an idol, but money reveals our idols. Because there are idols of our heart, this idol of, um, of beauty, of respect, of knowledge, of control of the future or feigned control of the future because I, I've got money stashed away t- to deal with any contingency. It reveals the idols of my heart. And we'll not, we'll, we'll not get at our lack of generosity unless we get at what is in our heart that impedes our generosity. And so we begin with that question prayerfully asked, uh, what is it that keeps me from giving generously? And then what do we do to cultivate a more generous heart? And I'll just end quickly on this, but we can, number one, ask God to reveal those idols of your heart and then just confess them. Rather than, rather than clothing them in something else, like Ananias and Sapphira, like, a, like the hypocrite does, and pretending that the gap is not there or the idol is not there, we just confess it and say, Lord, help me deal with that. Second, meditate on the grace of God. That sounds just like one of those like church things to say. But, but when we really meditate deeply on the grace of God, what he has given us in Jesus Christ, the, the more we understand grace, the more gracious we will be toward others. That makes us more giving. The generosity flows out of gracious hearts, hearts that understand Uh, what they've received. Number three, take some small action sooner than later uh, in response to what God reveals uh, to you about your own heart. So, uh, So, for instance, selling something you've been holding on to because you think you, you might enjoy that later, or you might not, you know, you, you, you might want to, you might not be ready to get rid of it yet, that whatever. It might be selling something and just giving, giving the proceeds away, or maybe giving that thing away. <laughs> um, getting rid of some things you've been holding on to that uh, you, you think you might need, not just the clothes that you're thinking about donating to the thrift store anyway. I mean, not things that are in your way and you're just waiting for an opportune time to put them in the trunk and take them to the thrift store. But something that has some value. It might be foregoing. It, it might be you're saving for that vacation or that trip or that boat or whatever it is. And you know that's got a hook in your soul. See, it's not about the vacation or the trip or the boat. Do you get that? This is, this is where uh, it, it can become a legalistic endeavor. All kinds of things can become legalistic endeavors. But it's, it's an issue of what place does that thing hold in our heart? And if you know it's got a hook in your heart, you might want to say, we're, we're not going to, you know, St. Thomas or Cancun or Disney or, you know, wherever it is. We're not going to buy the boat, etc." But it's, it's a very individual thing. Again, you know, you know what the issues of your own heart are, or actually you might not. <laughs> uh, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Um, but, but, but as, 
as we're reflecting on this passage, it may be that the Holy Spirit's stirring something inside of you, illuminating something, you're aware of it, but I'm just saying that's different for every, every person. But do something soon in response, even in a small way, uh, so you don't walk away and forget that and just be asking, God, uh, make me a person who loves so radically, who understands grace so deeply um, that I am just freely and exceptionally generous because all that I have is yours. And I hope there's something in there um, that the Lord can use um, to work in you, through you, and with you in the coming weeks. Well, let's close in prayer together. And as we do, I'll just invite some elders to make their way forward to be available at the conclusion of the service. Lord, we do thank you for uh, the priceless gift you gave us in the gift of your son, Jesus. Who gave up all the treasures of heaven in order to make us his treasure. He did not consider equality with God a thing to cling to, but let go of it. And he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in human appearance, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, because he treasured us. And he let go of all the treasures of heaven. And so, Lord, would you deepen our understanding of what it means to treasure him because he first treasured us. Exceedingly more than we treasure anything on this earth. Lord, would you reveal those idols of our own heart that have a grip on us that would keep us holding fast to the very blessings that you have given us by your own hand. Lord, make us people of grace who live graciously, who love radically, and who give of ourselves, our resources, and everything that we have and are generously. For the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.